Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Road to Black 47, The Great Famine Explained. Since 2016, I've been covering the story of the Great Famine in this podcast series. But over the summer, I took a break to look at some other stories from our past. Now that I'm returning to finish the history of the Great Hunger, I thought it might be worthwhile putting together a show that highlights the story so far. Whether you've listened to all the previous episodes on the Great Famine, or you want to jump in right now and find out what happened in Ireland in the 1840s, this is the show for you. There's lots of new information in this episode, not covered in previous shows. And as always, I follow an individual's life who's not been mentioned before. This podcast will shed light on the gripping story of one woman, one of the forgotten millions who lived through these world-changing events. Her name was Margaret Murphy. This show will also vividly recreate a picture of what Ireland looked like in the 1840s, a very, very different place than it is today. So as we journey through the 19th century, looking at Margaret Murphy's life, we will trace the roots of the Great Famine and how it developed. As you are about to hear, these roots stretch back decades into a time of rebellion and revolt. But before we begin, I want to thank the patrons of this podcast. My research and the production of these shows is funded by listeners like you, who generously support my work on Patreon.com. In return for their support, patrons get early access to the show, episode guides and exclusive podcasts. They also have exclusive access to my documentary, Famine Fields, released last month. You can become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. I'm eternally grateful for the support of show patrons and each patron gets a well-deserved shout out. So this week I want to thank AJ McConville, Deborah van der Harst, Idel Quirk, Al Hannam, Dee Dolan, Tiernan Noonan, Alan, Thomas Swords, Derek Dorn and Taylor Sturmer. Thanks folks, I really appreciate your support and generosity.
How exactly Margaret Murphy ended up in Dublin in 1847 will always remain a mystery. But to say she was unlucky doesn't begin to describe what she and her family were enduring. Originally from County Mayo, Margaret had emigrated to England where she and her husband Edward had raised a family. Her youngest surviving child, a girl, Catherine, had been born in London around 1837. However, for some unknown reason, the Murphys had moved back to Ireland and by 1847 found themselves in the country's capital at the worst possible moment. Dublin, in the late 1840s, was a fallen city. Its once proud inhabitants had claimed they lived in the second city of the British Empire, but those days were long gone. In the 1840s, not even the most deluded Dubliner would make such a boast. Walking through Victorian streets, the Murphy family found grinding poverty at every turn and only memories of what had once been better days in Dublin. The American writer Anseneth Nicholson, on arriving in Dublin in 1847, would comment that it can boast some of the finest architecture on earth. In her eyes, this fine architecture was offset by the underbelly of the city, of which she said, There are in the retired streets and dark alleys some of the most forbidding, most uncomfortable abodes that can be found. In truth, Anseneth Nicholson was being generous. The working-class quarters of Dublin, where Margaret Murphy and her family found themselves, were truly brutal places to live, especially in that year of Black 47. Thomas Willis, a doctor writing two years earlier, had provided an insight into working-class life in the parish of St. Mickens, a densely populated slum between the city centre and Smithfield. There, it was not uncommon to find 12 people living in one room. Of the houses, Thomas Willis said, The staircases and passages are all in a state of filth. The yards in the rear are so many depots of putrid animal and vegetable matter. And if a toilet be in any of them, it frequently is a source of further nuisance. The courts and back places are, if possible, still worse and are quite unfit for the residence of human beings. Sanitation didn't exist in St. Mickens. Willis continued, Pipe water, lime washing, dustbin, privy. These are things almost unknown. The stench and disgusting filth of these places are inconceivable, unless to those whose harrowing duties obliges them to witness such scenes of wretchedness. It was hardly surprising that infant mortality was more the norm than the exception in St. Mickens. Six in every ten children perished before they reached their teenage years. While similar charges could be levelled at many European cities in the mid-19th century, the Dublin Margaret Murphy and her family found themselves in was different though. Its poverty seemed to be drowning the city and it was only getting worse. By 1847, Dublin was in the grip of the worst famine in modern Irish history and one of the worst on record. The city had essentially turned into what has been described as a giant refugee camp with a constant stream of people making their way into the city from places like Margaret's native County Mayo in the hope of finding a better life. By 1847, Margaret, her husband Edward and their children were just one of thousands in the city who were utterly destitute. The country had not experienced anything like this in centuries and while it had begun in autumn 1845, it had deep roots that stretched back into Margaret Murphy's childhood if not long before. Margaret had been born around 1797 just as Ireland stood on the precipice 
of three years of revolution and counter-revolution that had changed the course of the island's history. As a result, Margaret's journey from childhood through her teenage years and then into adulthood saw Ireland travel down what was a road to perdition. Margaret Murphy had been born in the west of Ireland in the late 1790s. The Ireland she had grown up in was a radically different place than the Ireland she found herself in in 1847. In her youth, Dublin still had an imperial feel to it. Entry into the city along the River Liffey took visitors by the palatial residence of the Earls of Mora on the south bank, while the Four Courts complex, a vast neoclassical structure, was being finished on the north bank. In the 1790s, Dublin was still a city that was confident about its future. On a wider level, the island as a whole was also distinctly different. In the 1840s, it was ruled directly from London, but in the 1790s, while still part of the British Empire, it enjoyed a degree of autonomy. The centuries-old Kingdom of Ireland had its own parliament, which sat in a beautiful complex on College Green, Dublin, opposite the country's famous university, Trinity College. However, one didn't have to probe very far to find tensions that were bubbling away in Ireland in the 1790s. Catholics like Margaret Murphy, who formed the majority, were second-class citizens, while increasing numbers of Protestants, inspired by the French Revolution and its republican ideals, wanted change. Shortly after Margaret was born, they found common cause in the largest rebellion in Irish history, the 1798 Rebellion. Organised by the United Irishmen, the rebels wanted an independent Irish Republic, where people of all religions and none were treated equally. These dreams were crushed in a wave of violence and rebellion that ended in massacres, bloodshed and failure. Indeed, the final stages took place in Margaret's native Mayo when a French army landed in Kalala Bay to aid the rebels. While they defeated a sizable British army in a major battle known as the Castlebar Races, their success was short-lived and within weeks they were defeated. This was followed by a wave of counter-revolutionary terror unleashed by the British authorities. In Mayo alone, hundreds were executed. With the rebellion defeated, the British government then pushed through what was called the Act of Union to copper-fasten their control over Ireland. Coming into effect on January 1st, 1801, this abolished the Kingdom of Ireland and the Irish Parliament that had sat in Dublin. Ireland was subsumed into the United Kingdom of England, Wales and Scotland and ruled directly from London. The island status was reduced to that of a province and a forgotten one at that. This had a major impact in Ireland. The early 19th century was a time of great change across Europe. The Industrial Revolution was beginning in earnest, but unsurprisingly, no action was taken to help Dublin's factories that were already struggling against stiff competition from businesses in England. Over the coming decades, the city's working class were increasingly turning into an unemployed class. Their neighbourhoods were becoming slums, the Earl of Moira's palatial residence, mentioned earlier, was abandoned by its aristocratic owners and in the 1810s it became the home of the Mendicity Institute, a workhouse in the city. As Margaret Murphy turned 18, the situation deepened significantly in the aftermath of the Battle of Waterloo. Taking place in 1815, this battle saw the Irish-born Duke of Wellington, commanding a British army of which one in three people were Irish, defeat Napoleon. While this finally brought peace to Europe after two decades of war, it was not good news for Ireland. The resumption of trade between Britain and the continent resulted in a collapse in prices of agricultural goods. This devastated the Irish economy, which was heavily dependent on agriculture, 
and triggered a recession that would last decades. Assuming they were like most in Irish society at the time, Margaret would have met and married her husband Edward around the time of the Battle of Waterloo, but their futures were deeply uncertain. When they left Ireland and moved to England is unclear, but that they did is not surprising. From 1815 onwards, a deep recession took hold in Ireland. Emigration rapidly increased. Between 1815 and 1845, the year the Great Famine began, somewhere in the region of 1.5 million people left Ireland seeking a better life elsewhere. While Margaret Murphy emigrated, we need to keep looking at what was happening at home, because when she would return to Ireland, it was a very different place. On many occasions, emigration has served as a pressure valve in times of economic recession, but it had a limited impact in the 19th century, and the situation continued to deteriorate through the coming decades. Despite losing over one million people, mainly to the USA through emigration, the population of Ireland still grew at an extraordinary rate in the early 19th century. It had been around 5 million in 1800, but within 40 years it had nearly doubled, reaching somewhere between 8 and 9 million people by 1845. This added to the growing recession. Ireland was a country with comparatively few industrial jobs and cities, so the population growth was heaviest where we would expect at least in rural areas. With the amount of land available decreasing with each generation, the people were limited in what they could grow to feed themselves. Unsurprisingly, more and more acres were planted with the already popular potato, which could thrive in poor soils. By the 1840s, it was estimated 3 to 4 million people were totally reliant on the vegetable and little else. The statistics of diets at the time are extraordinary. Adult male labourers could eat 12 to 13 pounds of potatoes per day. That's nearly 6 kilos every single day. When complemented with buttermilk, this was a very nutritious diet and the Irish of the early 19th century were actually comparatively healthy. So despite being very, very poor, Irish peasants, based on the recruits to the army of the British East India Company, were about half an inch taller than their counterparts from England. It's also worth saying at this point that the island as a whole was not overpopulated, as is often stated. The problem was more one of wealth distribution. Each year, Irish farms, along with feeding the Irish population, were able to produce and export enough food to feed 2 million people living in Britain. However, living on a diet of potatoes in a society where poverty was endemic and where there was little or no chance of social mobility, deep resentment grew among the poor. While the likes of Edward and Margaret Murphy had left Ireland, those who remained saw rural violence increase in the 1820s and 1830s. These struggles were often economic in nature, but infused with sectarianism between Catholics and Protestants. For those who did emigrate, like the Murphys, life could still be difficult. The conditions that awaited them in slums in London or New York were in many respects equally appalling. However, there was one key difference. Overseas, there was hope. The likes of Edward and Margaret had a better chance of finding steady employment, maybe even advancing their station in life. It was very possible their children would be wealthier than they had ever been, something that was inconceivable back in Ireland. So in this context, what drove Edward and Margaret Murphy to return to Ireland before the Great Famine is something of a mystery. Life was not going to be easier than it had before they had emigrated. They now had a family to care for. Catherine, aged 10 in 1847, was presumably the youngest, given her mother was 40 when she was born, but there were five children in total. That said, while Irish society was still terribly poor, 
there were a few signs in the early 1840s that it might have turned a corner and there was some hope in the future. While the economy was still more or less stagnant, the 1841 census showed that population growth was slowing down. Furthermore, the violence that had been very common in the 1820s and 1830s was also in decline. However, the future is always unpredictable and despite the fact that Ireland seemed to be heading in the right direction, in 1845 the worst crisis in modern Irish history began. Next, we'll be looking at how the Great Famine unfolded, but first I'm going to take a quick break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. The Great Famine began in September 1845 when potato plants so crucial to the Irish economy, began to die mysteriously. At the time, no one knew what was causing the destruction of the plants. We now know it was blight, a fungus that completely destroys the potato plant and even the potatoes under the ground. The risk posed by this was immense. It was the most important crop grown on the island, not because of its monetary value, but because it was what over one third of the population depended on to survive. Worse still, as we've seen, Irish people in general were extremely poor after decades of recession, so they had little by way of savings or extra money after they paid their rents. 
for Margaret Murphy, as a native of County Mayo, where potatoes covered tens of thousands of acres, her thoughts immediately went to specific people she knew. The failure of the potato crop was not an abstract crisis for poor people like her. This would quickly become a struggle of life and death if something was not done. However, since the Act of Union abolished the Irish Parliament, all decisions would come from London. In the autumn of 1845, action was taken to avert the unfolding disaster. Sir Robert Peel, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, had been Chief Secretary in Ireland back in the 1810s and recognising the dangers he sent a commission to Ireland to investigate what was happening. By October it was apparent that somewhere in the region of 40% of the potato crop had been lost, which, despite being sizeable, was a manageable crisis. Action was needed and there were decisive measures that could be taken. In Dublin, Daniel O'Connell chaired a committee that demanded port closures along with other famine relief measures. Port closures, which would ban the export of certain types of food, had been very effectively used during previous famines when employed at the right time. However, Robert Peel's Conservative government, increasingly convinced of the merits of the untried and untested dogma of free market ideologues, opposed this measure. Free market ideologues stringently argued against any government intervention in the economy and Peel refused to close the ports or even limit exports. This resulted in large quantities of all kinds of food being exported by Irish merchants through late 1845. Robert Peel, however, did take some action. In secret, he ordered £100,000 of cheap food using the merchant bankers Bearings Brothers as agents to hide the fact the government were involved. The government planned to use this food to control food markets in 1846. They knew food would be scarce and prices would inevitably rise and when they did, they planned to drip feed their supplies of cheap food onto the market. It was done in secret as private merchants would boycott Irish ports if they knew the government was planning to control the market. This worked but only because Robert Peel had overestimated the extent of the crisis Otherwise, his supplies would have been woefully inadequate. While food shortages in the winter of 1845-46 to were not as bad as later years of the Great Famine, there's no doubt people across Ireland suffered. This can be seen from pawn shops whose business steadily increased in 1845 and 1846. People were selling pawn brokers whatever they could in order to get money. However, Irish people by and large survived what was a lean year with few casualties, and people keenly awaited the harvest of 1846, which they hoped would set things on an even keel again. However, in the summer, the mysterious fungus that attacked potatoes, the blight, appeared months earlier than it had in 1845. This was nothing short of a complete disaster, and what had been a crisis now turned into a catastrophe when around 80% of the crop was lost. Indeed, the summer of 1846 would prove to be a fateful moment, arguably the turning point in the history of the Great Famine. The future of people like Margaret Murphy and her family, along with millions, was increasingly beyond their control. They had begged, borrowed and pawned everything they had to get through the last 12 months, but now they were truly on their knees. With the potato almost completely lost, the crisis facing Ireland deepened. They needed government action. Otherwise, they would be left with a stark choice. 
Each year, most sold a pig or small cash crop to pay their rent. But in 1846, they would have to choose between paying rent or buying food. It was a catch-22. Failure to buy food would mean starvation. Failure to pay rent, however, would mean eviction and the prospect of starving on the side of the road or turning to the feared workhouse. The people were desperate for government intervention and in 1846 it would need to be on a far greater scale than it had been the previous year. However, such hopes were nothing more than just that, hopes. During that summer, while potatoes failed in Ireland, the Tory government of Sir Robert Peel fell from power in London and were replaced by the Liberal Party of Lord John Russell. The Liberals were not only influenced by free trade ideas, but many leading figures in the party were zealots and true believers keen to put such ideas to the test. Individuals like the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Wood, and the head civil servant in the Treasury, Charles Trevelyan, were adamant that government intervention would be pared back to an absolute minimum. These ideas, combined with the virulently racist attitudes pervasive among the British, middle and upper classes towards Irish people, combined to create a lethal cocktail for the likes of Margaret Murphy back in Ireland. Under the Liberal Party government, only very limited amounts of food were imported. By and large, Liberal Party politicians and supporters wanted the free market to provide food for the now starving Irish. Margaret and Edward Murphy, with their five children and millions more like them, were essentially going to become part of a massive social experiment in how unadulterated free market economics work. The Liberals, recognising the poor would need money to buy this cheap food, organised a vast system of public works where the poor would work in return for wages, which they then, theoretically at least, could use to buy food from the market. While this plan was being developed, Ireland descended into chaos. Panic gripped the population when they realised the government were not going to take effective action. With no government intervention, food being produced in Ireland continued to be exported. A perverse situation unfolded where poor peasants sold crops to merchants so they could pay their rent. The merchants many of whom were Irish, then exported this food to England where it fetched higher prices than it could at home. The export of food only served to push the price of all foodstuffs in Ireland up beyond the reach of many. Then the people who, at the start of this process, grew the food in the first place, began to starve. In the autumn of 1846, major rioting broke out across the south of Ireland to stop food convoys being moved to ports for export. Numerous people were killed, heavy sentences were handed down, but given the heightened British army presence on the island, this rebellion of sorts was defeated. As the government policy of public works unfolded, it proved to be a disaster, worse than anyone could have imagined. As exports continued, the price of food began to rise rapidly. To make matters worse, the public works, which were going to provide the poor with money, proved entirely unsuitable. People who had been enduring food shortages of one kind or another since the autumn of 1845 were expected to build harbours, roads and bridges. They were simply unable. Furthermore, the wages on offer, eight pence a day, were nowhere near enough to feed a family given food prices had skyrocketed. During the winter of 1846-47, to 47, hundreds of thousands perished. The statement, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, 
starts to come into effect at this point and it's easy to lose sense of the individual suffering. So next I want to read a couple of accounts that gives you some sense of what Margaret Murphy and her family were living through. On Tuesday, January the 5th, 1847, a doctor on the Bearer Peninsula in West Cork sat down to write an account of what his community were going through. It's worth remembering these events took place over just three days. Sir, I regret exceedingly to have to record the death of two more victims to starvation in this district, one of whom died on Sunday morning and the other yesterday. The name of the person who died on Sunday was Jeremiah Downing of Kilcatherine, who after having undergone the most heart-rending privations, sunk without having had any disease, leaving a wife and four children. The other, named James Sullivan of Slevenacopel Ardgroon, in the parish of Kilcatherine. It is true he had been previously ill with dysentery, now so prevalent, but no doubt can exist of his having died of absolute starvation not having been able to seek or obtain employment, and being kept alive by his poor neighbours, he has left a wife and five children. At this moment we are in a most wretched state. Scarce a bag of flowers in the town, not one grain of either oaten or Indian meal, so that even those who have money cannot get provisions to purchase. I remain yours truly, Matthew Bagnall. After he finished the letter, he received more news, which he included in this postscript. Postscript. I have just been sent for to attend a boy who has had his leg broken on the western road. On going to the house, I saw the father of the boy, another victim, to starvation. The poor boy lay by his dead father's side in the house of a poor man named Cronin, who it appears has afforded shelter to the wretched man for some time. The place is within about a mile of Castletown Bear. His name, Charles McCarthy. While writing this, I have now been called to purchase coffins for two more. The names of them I have not been able to ascertain. Incidentally, his referencing of a man who died from starvation is somewhat unusual. Estimates put those who died from starvation at less than 5%. Most people who died, died from disease, unable to live long enough to starve to death. In Margaret Murphy's native Mayo, the situation was little better. The population of the county would fall by a third through the course of the late 1840s and by 1847, death was stalking the living. The following report from the town of Castlebar, the largest in County Mayo, appeared in the Times newspaper under the headline Death from Want. It illustrates the horrendous conditions Manny now endured. On Wednesday last, the body of a poor woman was found dead in a field adjoining this town, Castlebar. A child belonging to the deceased had piled some stones around the body to protect it from dogs and pigs. There were far worse stories. Rumours of cannibalism, for example, would be confirmed in 1848 and 1849. But scenes like this one from Castlebar brought the human tragedy of the event sharply into focus. Those who could did resist. Along the northwestern coast of Mayo, what was called piracy was on the increase. This so-called piracy was the desperate actions of coastal communities raiding food ships passing along the coast. However, by 1847, the moment for major resistance was passing and the people were now facing a ruthless individual struggle for survival that often pitted families against each other or even family members against each other. In Dublin, Margaret Murphy found herself in a city beginning to starve. While the impact of the famine was less than it was in the far west, February 1847 saw the first deaths from starvation in Dublin when John and Ellen Mulhern living in the Smithfield area of the city, died 
leaving four children to fend for themselves. The pawn shops, which had been so busy through 1845 and 1846, now saw their business fall off. People had nothing left to sell. The American writer, Ansonette Nicholson, who had arrived in Dublin in 1847 to aid with famine relief work, entered the house of a woman to find her without a dress. She had pawned her last to pay her rent. In this emaciated population, typhus, typhoid and other illnesses carried off people in scores. The already filthy housing with no sanitation provided an ideal breeding ground for these famine diseases. By August 1847, the 10-year-old Catherine Murphy, the youngest child of Margaret and Edward, had fallen ill, in her case with a chest infection, something that would lead Margaret to take what was a huge risk, but one taken by hundreds of thousands of Irish people during the famine. While it would prove worthwhile for some, over 300,000 people who chose this course of action died. On August 2nd, 1847, Margaret began this by taking her daughter to the North Dublin Workhouse. This workhouse was among the largest of the 130 such buildings constructed across Ireland before the famine. They were designed to offer the destitute food, a bed and medical treatment, but it was never envisaged they would have to cope with a crisis on the scale of the Great Famine. As the catastrophe unfolded, workhouses struggled to provide the basics as the numbers of destitute people soared. By Christmas 1846, they had all reached capacity and through 1847, the numbers continued to climb. By May, the North Dublin workhouse had become a terrifying place. There were around 2,750 people in the complex, built to hold 2,000 people. Disease ran riot and the death rate exceeded 40 people per week in early May. While it had improved somewhat by the time Margaret Murphy entered with her daughter in August, there were still over 2,400 people in the building and during their first week there, 17 people died. The fact that they would enter such a building spoke volumes to the health of their 10-year-old daughter. Margaret must have feared she was dying. However, while the workhouse could provide the food that Margaret and her husband were too poor to buy, their sickly daughter was vulnerable to the plethora of other horrific illnesses that were claiming dozens in the building every week. The stories Margaret encountered from others did little to offer her comfort. On the same day she was admitted, a woman called Eliza Kelly had also entered the workhouse with her four children. Within two weeks, the youngest, a baby, also called Eliza, had died. She would lose another child before she left in October. A week after they entered, Honora Carthy, originally from County Tipperary, left the workhouse, having lost her only two children during her stay. In what was a rare, uplifting moment on August 24th, just over three weeks after they entered the workhouse, both Margaret and her daughter left, both still alive. Outside, they presumably rejoined Margaret's husband Edward and the other children, but life was no easier. Indeed, in the coming months, the famine was about to change in character. The British government were radically altering their involvement, which teed up a completely new phase of the Great Hunger. Early in 1847, Daniel O'Connell, the most famous Irish person of the age, a man known as King Dan, had summarised the situation facing Ireland when speaking before the House of Commons in London. She is in your hands, in your power. If you do not save her, she cannot save herself. 
I solemnly call on you to recollect that I predicted with the sincerest conviction that one-fourth of her population will perish unless Parliament comes to their relief. The government were actually in the process of changing their strategy. It was clear that their policy of public works and free market economics had been absolutely disastrous. This coupled with complaints in England that they were actually spending too much on famine relief in Ireland led them to change their approach. The public works programme was slowly phased out and replaced with soup kitchens which were opened up across the island. While the soup was far from perfect, this was a step in the right direction and mortality fell through the summer of 1847. But the crisis as we have seen from Margaret Murphy's experiences in the North Dublin workhouse remained critical. However, as they looked to the future, the British government had no intention of overseeing soup kitchens indefinitely. Even though there were deeply worrying signs for the future and clear evidence the famine was far from over, they wanted to rid themselves of the business of famine relief in Ireland. They essentially thought it was an issue for Ireland to be dealt with in Ireland with the money raised in Ireland. In the words of the founder of The Economist magazine, James Wilson, a contemporary and a fellow traveller of Manny and the Liberal Party. It is no man's business to provide for another. However, as Daniel O'Connell had said, Ireland needed help from someone. Nevertheless, the government pushed ahead with their plan to remove themselves from the situation as much as they could. The soup kitchens that had helped the situation when they had been introduced were closed down in September. After this, famine relief was largely the responsibility of what were local welfare organisations in the Victorian era, the poor law unions, which operated workhouses. These were funded by poor rates, local taxes collected in Ireland, but the poor law unions were already struggling to keep the workhouses they operated open. This move on behalf of the British government had terrible consequences. Given Irish landlords paid these local taxes, the poor rates, for their poorer tenants, this only served to incentivise evictions, which became the easiest way for a given landlord to reduce his poor rate bill. Indeed, from early 1847, Irish landlords made their intentions clear. They would evict before they would take on the burden of famine relief. Large-scale evictions were, in any case, something many landlords had wanted to do in order to restructure their estates. The representatives of these landlords in Parliament pushed through something called the Gregory Clause to help them in this regard. This would prove to be one of the most deadly pieces of legislation passed during the Great Famine. Under this clause, in order to receive famine relief from a poor law union, one needed to be destitute and the test of that destitution was a quarter acre of land. If you owned more than a quarter acre, you could not be considered destitute and could not receive relief. This was cruel in the extreme. The goal here was to force the starving poor to give up their land and thereby landlords would not be on the hook for poor rates. This helped to pave the way for some 250,000 evictions that would take place during the latter years of the Great Famine. The already malnourished people were now homeless and they would struggle to survive in the harsh winter conditions. As this was unfolding, the harvest of 1847 proved to be another disaster. Even though the potato crop was healthy that year, the overall yield was tiny because very little land had been planted. Lots had assumed the blight would return as it had in 1845 and 1846, 
while all too many people had actually been working on the government public work schemes instead of working on their farms. While huge quantities of cheap food were now being imported into Ireland, many had no money to buy it and couldn't get work because the economy had more or less imploded. When Margaret Murphy reunited with her husband after her stay in the workhouse in late August 1847, more, not less people were on the move, most of them destitute like the Murphys. The coming winter was bleak and the prospect of its approach left few with any hope. Indeed, by December 10th, 1847, there were 3,000 people in the North Dublin workhouse and a further 3,000 dependent on provisions from the North Dublin Poor Law Union. What happened to the Murphy family is unknown. With such a common name, it's difficult to trace them. In a city teeming with people, it was easy to disappear. This poses tantalising questions, though. Where did they go? Did they survive? Did they emigrate? Certainly by late 1847, the numbers leaving the country was nothing short of a biblical exodus. By the end of the year, 220,000 famine refugees had fled Ireland. Perhaps the Murphys were among their number, or perhaps they were among the multitudes who, unable to afford passage, were trapped in an Ireland that seemed doomed. This episode has provided a general picture of how the Great Famine unfolded through the first two years, but it's not the full picture. There are 23 other episodes in the Great Famine podcast series, which you can get in the back catalogue. And in the coming episodes, I'll be detailing what happened in 1848, which leads us up to the intriguing story of the 1848 rebellion, as well as many other enthralling accounts of survival. Then there are also the individual aspects of the famine that I have yet to cover. The story of the Great Famine in Ulster deserves a show of its own, given it's often falsely asserted the province escaped the Great Hunger. I'll also be looking at the remarkable stories of generosity and humanity as well. I hope you'll all join me in this series by subscribing in iTunes, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts if you haven't done so yet. So until next time, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 